told you to say that. I know. I know. All right, good evening, everyone. It is 7.01, so I want to get started because not only is it our last night tonight, it's also supposedly a compression of two lessons. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see, yeah, supposedly. So we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, yeah, and if, knowing me, we don't even get through one session in, in the time that I'm, I'm given, so how are we going to get through two? We'll see. All right, let me pray for us. We'll get started. Lord, thanks again for the time that we can be here together tonight. Thank you for the last several months that we've been together as we've been learning how to study your word, uh, learning how to read it carefully and think about what you intend it to mean. And uh, Lord, we, uh, like James said, we don't want to only be hearers of the word, but we also want to be doers of the word. We want your word to have its effect, its intended effect on our lives. You said that your word doesn't return void, it accomplishes the purpose that you send it for, and, and that it is your word that is at, at work in us who believe. And so we pray that tonight as we think about applying your word, that you would help us to do so well and in faithfulness to what Scripture means, that we would devote our lives to being both hearers and doers of the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, congratulations. You, you made it. Um, we were just joking up here about uh, where the, the trophies are hidden or the congratulatory plaques. Um, Candace wanted there to be donuts. I'm sorry that I don't have anything like that for you. Uh, hopefully, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, hyper-spiritualize this, hopefully you're walking away with something much more valuable than donuts or a pulpit. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm making it worse. All right. If anybody asks, that was Tom's fault. <laughs> so, uh, okay, tonight we're going to start by talking about your homework from uh, last week, and uh, then we're about about 7.30, I want to try to wrap that up, because then we've got the rest of what we're talking about coming, and um, talking about application, and I feel like we're going to shortchange it a little bit because application can be a much bigger topic. We could actually spend three or four weeks talking about the way that we appro- uh, apply the Bible, uh, but uh, we are not going to have that time. We have uh, an hour and 56 minutes. So uh, we're going to do our best. I'm going to try to give you some resources at the end that will uh, be helpful uh, about thinking about application. Uh, and then hopefully as we get to the end, we'll be able to transition a little bit and talk about uh, now that you're done with this class, what's next? How do you take this and, and use it in the future? So uh, what I want you to do is take about the next 15 minutes, talk at your tables about your homework, and specifically part of your homework was to uh, read 
this selection from Frank Tillman's uh, commentary on Philippians. Uh, and if you studied the passage and then read the commentary, like the instructions say, want to see how did your, your own study compare to what you learned in the commentary? Are there things that you learned in the commentary that you weren't able to see in your own study? Are there things that, that he brought up that you took differently and, and why did you do that? Um, how do you think reading the commentary is helpful? How do you think it might prove to be challenging or unhelpful in some way? Did you think the commentary was of no benefit whatsoever? If so, why? <laughs> um, and uh, so spend about 15 minutes talking about that. We'll come together, we'll talk about that as a large group, and then we'll move into talking about application. All right? Okay, I'm going to finish up your conversations and, and we'll talk together about what you thought about this assignment. Which of you fine young gentlemen would like to run the mic around? Don't make me pick. <laughs> so. What do you guys think? What did you think about reading the, the commentary? Was that helpful? Was it not helpful? If it was helpful, what was helpful about it? Are there things that you learned that you maybe wouldn't have seen otherwise, possibly? Did you see everything that he saw and more? <laughs> yeah. uh, here, do you want to? Hang on, Mike. Was he giving oh, it to no. you? Do I need oh, sorry, were you talking? My bad. You didn't raise your hand. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. What, what struck me, the, the, the most important point that I got of uh, uh, his, uh, his uh, write-up here was Paul's real pre preoccupation and focus on making sure that the Philippians... Uh, that he was not taking advantage mm -hmm. of their financial support. Mm -hmm. And that was stressed over and over. And mm -hmm. that was really uh, a major point that, that came through uh, for me. So, yeah. Do you think there's anything about the way that, that Frank Tillman put this together and the things that he said that um, maybe is something that you would have not gotten just by looking at Scripture? I think so, yes. It, he brought that, that, that aspect uh, in my mind. It, it, he made it very clear to me yeah. that he was really preoccupied, preoccupied with uh, uh, making sure that the Philippians, uh, that he wasn't taking advantage yeah. of them vis-a-vis yeah. -vis their financial support. Yeah, good. Yeah, sure. One write a commentary whether you have very much smarts or not. <laughs> well, um, thanks to the internet, anybody can write anything they want. Uh, 
for a person to write a commentary like this that's going to be published by a reputable publishing house, uh, no, they, they generally need to have uh, lots of qualifications and experience and okay. so forth. Lots of letters behind their name and things like that. Like yeah. one time he said, um, Carl Paul, a wise stoic. Oh gosh, my favorite part was flipping these pages. Uh, says, Paul does not consider physical deprivation an unmitigated disaster, nor physical comfort the sign of success. So to me, that's like he's, he's speaking for Paul, you know, he doesn't, mm -hmm. and I, that's why I was asking, uh, yeah, well, I'm sure, first of all, this commentary is, yeah, no, this commentary is more of a, it's a, it's a general commentary, so they're not getting into all the sort of technical stuff. So some of that stuff uh, could potentially be uh, things that if he were to write uh, a much thicker commentary, he would be able to take you line by line through. This is exactly why I'm saying this. But what I'm saying is he, you know, he refers to certain scriptures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he puts that statement out there. Yeah. So he's coming to a, he, he's coming to a conclusion about what he thinks the text means. Yeah. Tidbit I would not have known. Mm. Charlatan philosophers were a frequent sight on the street corners of cities like Philippi in mm. ancient times. They dressed like philosophers. Many were able to gather a following that was willing not only to hear and submit to them, but to give them financial support. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's a little caveat. How do you find that kind of stuff out? You know? Yeah, so the fact that Tillman brings out this idea that maybe one of the reasons that Paul was at such pains to make sure that the Philippians do. I'm not taking advantage of you financially. I want you to understand how this works. I didn't need it. Here's the, God will supply my needs, but that was very nice of you that you sent it. Thank you. Um, one of the reasons that maybe he did that was because in the ancient world, in Greek cities, there uh, were traveling philosophers who would get these followings and uh, would end up getting money from the people, uh, kind of like they were their disciples, and they would make these itinerant teachers, but they're teaching Greek philosophy. So one of the places that Thielman's probably getting this is by reading ancient Greek literature and seeing that, hey, this is what was going on at the time. And so the fact that Paul is talking in this way seems like it's setting him up in opposition to what was going on in the culture. Uh, you do have another place in Scripture where Paul actually talks about this a little bit, and that's in First and Second Corinthians. Where Paul tells the Corinthians, like, I didn't come to you with letters of recommendation, which would have been, this is one of the things that the philosophers would have done. It's like, I, uh, and uh, I didn't, uh, in First Thessalonians, says, I didn't take money from you. I labored among you. So I didn't come teaching all this stuff and saying, now pay me, pay me, pay me, even though I could have, because it was right for me to get my living from the gospel. So you can see in some other places that Paul talks about this. So it's probably a combination of looking at things that Paul has said elsewhere, and then also looking at what's going on in the culture around that. Now, the Bible is not a handbook on ancient Greek culture. So we get to utilize resources that describe what was going on at the time to help us try to understand the Bible. Just on the scripture today, while some people are, uh, sometimes 
don't want to give their money to churches or whatever sure. because it's possibly misused, right? Yeah. Yeah, people don't want to give their money to churches because it's possible to be misused, although you give your money to anybody and it could be misused. Exactly. Right, so it's... Uh, all right, yeah, Brent, we'll, find, we'll get back to you. It's, <laughs> Uh, I, I thought it was helpful, like, when, when we take the time to study it ourselves okay. and then come to a conclusion, mm-hmm. and then you read a commentary, mm-hmm. and it agrees with what, what we were thinking. Yeah. I think it helps, like, build confidence and trust that, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not stupid in a sense. Like, I can, yeah. I can figure these things out, and I don't, you know, I think sometimes it, the trick is we become too dependent Mm-hmm. on the commentaries, but mm-hmm. if we actually take the time to study and then find out that things agree yeah. with us, it helps build confidence that God can give us wisdom as we take the time to study the scriptures ourselves. Yeah, so the more you, the more you learn and practice studying the Bible on your own, um, the more when you go to a commentary at the end of your study process, if you study a pastor and say, now I want to go and I want to check myself, um, not that the commentary is an answer key, it's not, but it is at least going to give you somebody else's insight into the same passage. You get to see, okay, what does this person say about this? And you'll find, oh yeah, that's, I, I thought about that too. Um, now you also may come across things where when you were studying the passage, you thought it meant one thing, and they're saying it means another thing. Now just because it says it in the commentary and you said it meant something else, doesn't mean that the commentary is right and you're wrong. But if somebody else is saying something, that it means something else, then it forces you to go back and check your work and say, okay, did I understand this correctly? Does this person have a point? Can I make a convincing argument that my point is actually more correct or closer to being true, something like that? So um, just because somebody says it and they wrote a book doesn't mean that they're right. But just because it's what you thought the first time you read it doesn't mean that you're right, right? And so we want to be humble enough to be able to be corrected, but also confident enough in the fact that as we read the Bible and as we humble ourselves before the Lord that we're going to be able to understand it, that uh, we don't need to read a commentary in order to understand what God has written in his word. So there may be some uh, contextual nuances, things like we have these philosophers that are going around extorting money from people that, yeah, you're probably not going to get that just from reading the Bible. That's not also an essential piece to understanding what it means. That's a helpful uh, kind of giving it color, helping you understand what was going on, maybe why it was important in that particular situation. Um, but you may end up with the exact same interpretation of its meaning and significance uh, as you would if you had all that information. So, and I think you're right. I think as you read then a commentary and see, oh, I came up with the same thing sitting here with my Bible and my notebook, and this guy came up with it surrounded by all of his books and and uh, frame degrees and so forth. It's like, okay, maybe I don't need all of those things to understand the Bible. Yeah, that's good. Anyone else? Yeah, Jim. Thanks. The thing I enjoyed about the commentary was as you start thinking about something and then you read about it in a commentary, often 
they have a better way of expressing it. Mm. They, they can kind of flesh it out better verbally mm -hmm. than as I begin to l look at it and try and start thinking through stuff, trying to figure out how am I going to frame that or how, am I, how do I communicate that? Mm -hmm. And then I read what, how they've presented it. I go, okay, that's a much richer way to present it. Yeah. So I find it's helpful in that way. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you may come to, to read a commentary and it's something that kind of the interpretation that they come to is like, well, this is basically what I was thinking, but they just say it a lot better. So um, that can happen sometimes. There are, sometimes I will warn you that you'll be reading a commentary and you'll read it and you'll think, I have no idea what this person is trying to say. They're supposed to be making this clearer for me. They're making it worse. Uh, and so sometimes we can do, I think, just as good, if not a better job, particularly depending on the audience that you're working for, right? I mean, so if you're teaching a Bible study to people in a local church, you're probably not going to want to use certain commentaries that are going to use all sorts of big words and things like that. Not because people are dumb, but because it's like this is very unhelpful for the people that I'm working with. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to apologize because I didn't actually read the... <laughs> Um, you get extra points for admitting it the on the microphone. <laughs> but I just wanted to point out that I just feel like when you are sharing something, if you're only sharing something that you've read from a commentary, then it's not connecting to you personally. Mm -hmm. So then I think you could be sharing something that you think somebody needs to hear, but it's not going to have that personal resonance to it. Whereas sure. the, the things that I read um, over the past several weeks that really meant something to me personally mm. and I was able to connect to a difficult thing that I struggled with I feel like if I were to share that with somebody it would have more personal meaning yeah yeah I think that's a really good point um, I mean and sometimes we can feel just in our kind of normal study it's like well if I just read about the Bible or I read the Bible and then I read what somebody else says about the Bible then that's that's good that I'm reading it. Okay, well, that's better than not doing anything. So I'll give you that. But we flip it and say, let's, let's pretend that Tom decided for preaching that all he was going to do was read commentaries on a book of the Bible and then basically just kind of parrot them back to us on Sunday mornings. How do you think that would go? Yeah, I don't think you guys would like it, first of all, but... What? We wouldn't, have to hear the same jokes. we wouldn't have to hear the same jokes over and over again. That's true. That's true. He's only got he's only got ten of them. So, um, oh, I don't. I tell him that to his face. This, this it's a regular topic of conversation. Um, we love Tom. So, uh, but but yeah, it's not going to have. I mean, one of the things that they'll talk about when you preach is you don't want to just take the Bible and just shove it on people without having it first sunk into your heart and transformed you. So as a preacher, you want to preach to yourself as much as preaching to the people that you're preaching to. Um, and I feel like you can tell a difference between somebody who's just uh, lecturing on something they read about and somebody who's met with God in His Word, right? So... Uh, I think there's a, there's a big difference there. And that doesn't, that's not just for preachers. That's for anybody who exercises ministry of the word. That's just, do you ever talk to anybody anywhere about the Bible? Then you're a minister of the word. That's God's design for the church. 
is for all of God's people to be speaking God's word and the power of God's spirit to one another that we might be built up in Christ. Right? So, um, as a student of the Bible and a minister of the word, then it's important for you to be studying it for yourself because and I, I can speak for myself in this. I don't know if you guys agree. When I learn something myself, when I come to learn something rather than have somebody kind of spoon feed it to me, I really know it. Like it becomes a part of me. There's lots of stuff that I've read and forgotten. But there's a lot of stuff that I've come to in my study that's rooted pretty far down in my heart because I came by it naturally or supernaturally. Okay, let's move on. If you go to lesson 11 on page 155, your workbook. So, here what we'll do. We'll do some review. It's the last week, so we're supposed to review. Remember the acronym that we used for the, the process of Bible study? O-I-C-A. Oika. Yep. What, uh, what does the O stand for? Observation. What does the text say? Not what do you want it to say, not what do you wish it would say, not what do you assume that it says, what does it actually say? And then the I is what? Interpretation, what does it mean? Not what does it mean to me? You know better than to ask that question. What did it mean to the original audience? And then the C, correlation. How does it fit with the rest of the Bible? Where does it fit in God's redemptive plan? How does our understanding of this text shaped by the fact that Jesus came and died and rose again and ascended and poured out the Spirit and now we live in the new covenant? How does, how does this text uh, fit in the whole storyline of the Bible. And then A, application. This is where we are tonight. So, why does application matter? Like, why, why do we need to go to this step? If we stopped here, and you guys were to practice the things that we have been talking about, you may walk away being able to write a commentary on what the Bible says and means, meant to the original audience, how it fits in the whole storyline of the Bible. Why does application matter? Yeah, we have, okay, put, we have to put the, the Bible to use in our lives. Yeah? Why bother with all that work? a great question. Why bother with all of this work if you're not going to do something with it in your life? It's a good question. God says His Word is useful. Right? 2 Timothy 
uh, 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable or useful. Right? It's not all scripture is breathed out by God and interesting. If we're going to advance the gospel, then we're going to need to apply the word. We have to do what it says, right? Are you say something right? Yeah, like what you just read about uh, James. Like you were listening. <laughs> if we're not, if we be our hearers only and we're not doing, we're not living out what we, what we learn, then something is an error. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Right, yeah, so uh, God's purpose in your life is not just to get you saved and then hit the pause button or the fast forward button and get you to heaven. It's to transform you to become like Jesus. And how does he do that? By his spirit, through his word. That's the instrument of change, the word of God. So if we are not changing and being conformed to the image of Christ, according to what we see uh, in the Word, then we're stunted in our spiritual growth. Right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so in Ephesians 6, uh, in the armor of God, the one, this is a common observation, the, the one offensive weapon in the believer's arsenal, so to speak, is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. See this when, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, right? Satan comes to him and starts tempting him and lying to him. And, and how does Jesus respond? He, he quotes the word. Interestingly, he quotes Deuteronomy. How many of you quote Deuteronomy when you're tempted? <laughs> he quotes Deuteronomy. He uses that to stave off temptation. Yeah. Application is the gospel in action. I like that. Yeah. Application is, is the natural outworking of the, the word at work in us. Right? So, and part of the problem is, well, we're, actually, we're going to get to the problem. Uh, so, Here's that passage from James. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So if you are only hearing the word and you're never doing it, you're never practicing it, you're never applying it to your life, thinking through the implications that it has from your life, then you're deceiving yourself. That's not a good place to be. Anyone who's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Right? So he looks at himself in the mirror, and he walks away, and then he forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. And part of the problem that James is addressing, if you think back to when we talked about James 2, we did a, a, a word study on uh, justify and uh, Part of the problem that James is dealing with is people who 
talk the talk, but are not bearing any fruit. They're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I got faith, I got faith. And James is like, I, yeah, I'm not seeing it. You sound like you're, you're, you're learning a lot, but there's a, a long distance between your head and your heart. And this, is a, this is from our, uh, our doctrinal statement. Right? This is what we believe about the Bible. We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. It's the verbally inspired Word of God. You remember back to week one, when we were talking about what this means, right? The Bible says exactly what God wants it to say, and the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of His will for salvation the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it's to be believed in all it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Right? So, even our doctrinal statement doesn't just say things that we believe are true about the Bible. It also says... Because this is true about the Bible, this is the effect that it ought to have in our lives. Why do we find application challenging? Okay, we're all sinners. Now, what, what about that makes application challenging? Okay, it's difficult to do, but why is it difficult to do? Yeah, it's right. It's, so it's opposite of what everybody else is doing in the world, right? It's against what the world is doing. Right? So oftentimes what the Bible is going to tell us to do is very contradictory to what we see everybody else doing. Yeah. We don't like that yet, yeah, Andrew. Yeah. Right. So uh, a lot of times, if you think about in school, or I, I can think about this in when I took like science classes and the scientific method and you, you learn how to observe and you learn how to hypothesize and you learn how to interpret data and things like that. And we all kind of do this naturally to some extent, but there aren't a ton of places where we are being uh, consistently forced to, okay, now apply that to your life. How is that going to change the way you live? And there are some other books that might, might do that, but not with the kind of consistency that the Bible does, nor does the, any of these other books uh, demand our allegiance the way that the Bible does, right? And so I could read a, a book about uh, uh, being more productive during my work day. I get to the end of the book and I could say, that was nice, and I don't have to listen to any of it, right? I don't have to apply it, right? And then no, and no one's going to say, wow, why didn't you apply it? They're going to be like, oh, okay, that must not work for you. We don't get to do that with the Bible, right? But that's, yeah, well, here, I'll come back. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if part of our, our ministry in the church is not only to apply the Bible to us, but to help others apply it to themselves, and have other people speak into our life, and but we think have adopted in many ways kind of the... the the culture that's around us of like, oh, great, uh, I want you to be a part of my life as long as you affirm what I'm doing. As soon as you challenge what I'm doing, I'm not interested in hearing about it. Right? Yeah, definitely. Cheryl. 
Yeah. There's not always a one-to-one correspondence between what we read in the Bible and what we're experiencing right now, so we can't always draw the kind of straight line that we want to draw, or at least we can't find what that line is, and so we'll either apply it in a way that is uh, at best um, marginally acceptable, uh, or at worst is just an outright total misapplication of Scripture rather than actually kind of do the hard work of figuring out what Scripture how scripture would apply in a particular situation. Brett? This falls along with us being sinners, but we really don't want to. Uh, our, our flesh is always fighting against us. We don't, we don't want to apply the word, right? Now, I think, I, generally speaking, I would say I probably could ask all of you that question, and you would all say, no, of course I want to apply the word. Of course I do. Now, if I were to challenge you on a particular point in your life from the word, and I were to demonstrate to you this is what it means and this is the bearing that I think it has in your life, you may not be so eager to apply it. Right? I, I would hope you would be, and I would hope that I would be if you came to me with something, but uh, we don't like having to change what we do, just in general. Right? Come. Yeah. right. Application often means changing, changing something, not always changing behavior, we'll talk about that, but some kind of change, some kind of transformation. John, how do people change? How do people change? (laughs) It's funny, I read a book about that one time. (laughs) How do people change? Yeah, Jeff. So, we're going to talk a little bit about the the difference between the imperatives in Scripture, the things that are commanded, and the indicatives in Scripture, the things that are stated as facts, as truths that that are now true of you in Christ and and the way that that works out. But um, applying the Word can turn into a burden if you think that it's up to you to do the changing. Right? Now, you're a participant in it. Like you, you can't just sit back and wait for God to change you and do nothing. Um, but you're also not the one who's at work inside of you. Right? And so the power to change coming from the gospel. Uh, and and that's, I mean, I think that's a big, a big problem as we read the Bible. And this is my, my experience. When I first became a Christian, I remember people telling me, you've got to have a quiet time in the morning, and you have to read you know, this much scripture, and then you have to come away with an application. And if you don't come away with an application, you're not doing it right. But the way that the application was framed for me, it was what's, basically, what's something you can change? What's something you can change in your life? What's something you can do differently because of what you read? And, it, and you end up with all sorts of weird stuff 
that you end up doing or not doing in your life because of things that you read. Because if you don't walk away with that one thing that you can change that day, that you can do, then you're not doing it right. So, but I think there's a different way to do it. Yeah, Bob. Yeah. And I think that that's exactly what's going on with applications. Yeah. It really is telling your testimony. Yeah. As you, as you are diligent to apply the word, uh, and God changes you, then as those things change inside of you, and then as you share your testimony with other people, you can speak to the change that God has wrought in you. Not. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine one time, and it was an absolute disaster. Probably one of the worst spiritual conversations I've ever had. And he was asking me about, I was a fairly new Christian, maybe a couple of years. Uh, maybe it was more than a couple of years. Anyway, either way it was embarrassing. And he was asking me about, um, uh, like, t- tell me about what, like, what is it that you believe, like, why do you believe this stuff, right? Boom, huge open door to share the gospel. And um, in my testimony, I kind of stumbled around, well, I, I, don't, uh, I don't do this anymore, I don't do this anymore, and I never seemed to make it to the cross. There was, I mean, it, was, it was awful. It was embarrassing. And now you all know. Um, but had I understood what God was doing in my life uh, and why it was happening the way it was happening through the application of the word, I may have been able in that testimony to share something that was of greater substance to him. I can say, well, I can tell you that I'm, you know, yeah, things have changed in my life, but you know what? It's not because I've turned over a new leaf. Now, I can point to things specifically in my life that have changed, but it's not because I've been trying hard. Let me me tell you about Jesus. So, as always, things are not as easy as they seem, right? And so, of course, we want you, when you read Scripture, be thinking, how is this passage in its, uh, in its one meaning, the meaning that it was intended uh, to have by God to the original hearers, and then we have come to understand that as we interpret it, how does that meaning uh, create implications for my life? Why is it significant for me as a Christian in the 21st century in my particular situation? So oftentimes, I don't think I put this in any of the slides, but I like to talk about implications more than applications, because sometimes applications can be, okay, what do you have to do? Uh, and it's not that that word is, is wrong, it can just easily be misunderstood. So I think Scripture has lots of implications for our life in lots of different ways. Uh, so, but there's 
ways that we can go about coming to applications of Scripture that probably uh, put us in places that are not where God intends us to be as we seek to apply the Word, just in the way that we can come to interpretations of Scripture that are not necessarily helpful. I think there are ways that we can apply Scripture that are not necessarily helpful. Um, And uh, especially, I think, if you are ever in a situation where you are talking to somebody else about what Scripture means and what it might mean for their life, you can make some of these applications. So, I think one of the reasons that this happens is because while we should be moving from observation to interpretation and correlation, so what does it say to what does it mean, how does it fit with the rest of Scripture, and then go to application, I think oftentimes when we do this, we will, we will read the text, we'll read it through fast, or it's, you know, we only have a couple minutes, so we'll read through, and then we will skip right from observation to application. We'll go from what does it say to the, how, why does it matter to me? And, and what happens when we do that is we can come up with some, some really strange applications that are not necessarily rooted in what the text itself means. And so you might say, well, this application made sense to me, so I did it. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad or wrong. It just may not, may not be the way that the text is intended to be applied. So, here are some options that you have as you go about interpreting the Bible and applying it inappropriately. If you turn to page 157 in your book, uh, they talk about this in your workbook. They're using uh, Philippians as we've been doing throughout. They have these three different categories. And I use the Venn diagram because the more and more I read through this, the more I realized that all of these kind of overlap in some respect. And so over-spiritualizing, uncritical imitation, and moralizing all kind of overlap. And so there's a lot of shared space there. Um, Over-spiritualizing. This is where we may take uh, unwarranted spiritual, I put that in air quotes, spiritual lessons from the details of a text. Okay? Now, um, an example of that if, uh, see that I put this down. Where did I put this? Six, oh, I didn't put it down. That's too bad. Okay. An example of this, I'll give you an example because this is fun. Um, I was at a, a church one time and uh, I, believe me, I've done this before, okay? So I don't, I'm not just casting stones at other people. So, but this one sticks out in my mind. In, um, uh, what is it? It's Genesis, I want to say it's Genesis 37, Genesis 30 something. It's the story of Joseph, right? And Joseph is um, being a real jerk to his brothers because he has a coat with sleeves and his brothers don't, or a coat of many colors that, if you like the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. And, um, and uh, so his brothers get mad that he's got this, this fancy coat and that he's having dreams. And so they beat him up and they throw him in a pit. Right? And so the sermon that day was on 
Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat in the Pit. That's not the title of the sermon. Uh, that would be worse. And so the brothers throw him in a pit, and then he gets to the end. Joseph is still in the pit at the end of the sermon, and we jump right to application. So he just basically told the story of what happened. Poor Joseph gets thrown in a pit. What's the pit in your life? You, have you heard this before? Well, not, maybe not this one. Have you heard something like this before, right? You this with David and Goliath too, right? David went out to, to fight Goliath. Who are the giants in your life? Right? It's like, well, that'll preach well. Because like, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way before. Well, there's a reason you hadn't thought about it that way before. That's not what it means. So we can over-spiritualize things. So we, we, and this especially is true in narrative, I think, where, um, where we have all these details in a text and we try to take, it's like, well, I'm not actually in a pit, but, but like metaphorically I'm in a pit spiritually I'm in a pit so it's like well that's probably not related to the meaning of the of the text and it's you know, even if you get to like you know they threw him in a pit but then you know God got him out and it's like well keep reading because they sold him into slavery and then he went and then he got accused of rape and then he went and spent a long time in jail so after he gets out of the pit it doesn't get better so maybe we shouldn't use that as the application of this problem. If you want to make that point that God is going to care for you, there are other texts that we can use for that. That's not what the story means. Right, so that would be one example of that. Uh, uncritical imitation would be when we inappropriately imitate the specific actions and attitudes of biblical characters. Right? And Bob and I were just talking about this early. We, uh, we talked about this a little bit last week too, and previously especially we talked about ways that we interpret narrative I remember narrative literature especially. Um, things are, are descriptive. They're saying what happened, but they're not necessarily prescriptive, telling you what you ought to do. Uh, and so just because you read that somebody did something doesn't mean that it's a good idea or that they should have done it. Okay? Um, so an example would be in Judges 6, uh, Gideon who everybody, everybody loves Gideon. Wow, Gideon, he beat the Midianites with 300 guys and stuff like that. Gideon was a coward. Um, and God kept taking people away from him because Gideon didn't trust God, right? And so Gideon uh, does the whole thing with the fleece, right? I'm going to put the fleece out. God, you've proved to me that you're going to do it by doing, by doing this. And God's like, okay, fine. And he, right, he makes the fleece wet. And he does it, and Gideon's like, Okay, no, but that wasn't enough. Just one more time, though. Put the fleece up, right? And so then we, we're like, oh, so that's what we're supposed to do to find God's will. We're supposed to put a, a fleece out. And then God's going to do something. He's going to show us. Like, Well, I don't think that's what it's saying. First of all, it's just describing what Gideon did. Second, Gideon probably shouldn't have been doing that. He's putting the Lord to the test. And the fact that God uh, said, uh, no, I'm not doing that was God's mercy, There are tendencies we have because we see people doing certain things in the Bible. Uh, and this is not something that is as hard for us when it's something that, uh, in our eyes, is very clearly a sin, right? Um, so, uh, David has Uriah murdered. Well, I think we're all probably agreed that that wasn't a great plan and we probably shouldn't imitate that, right? Um, but there are other things that, 
biblical characters do, uh, including people that we would normally think are pretty godly people, uh, and we ought not imitate them. Just because you read it doesn't mean it's something that you ought to imitate. That doesn't mean that you necessarily shouldn't imitate it. It just means that you can't always imitate everything. Not everything is exactly an example for you, and if you're going to use it as an example, you need to do some work to figure out why it's a good example to follow. And the third thing is moralizing, right? So we talked about this before. We make the Bible into a book of like Aesop's fables, where every story has got a moral, and and it's uh, here's the the person in the story who's doing the good thing, the person in the story who's doing the bad thing. Uh, so be like the people who do the good things. Don't be like the people who do the bad things, and everything's going to go well. And that is American Christianity, right? Be like the good people. Don't be like the bad people. And everything's going to work out fine. Problem is, everybody in the Bible is a bad person, except for Jesus. <laughs> okay? So that's, that's the first step. Um, most of the time, the point of what the Bible is saying is not to give you a moral of the story. It's to tell us something about who God is and who we are because of who God is and because of our sin and, and uh, what God is doing to redeem the world from its brokenness and sin and the demands that God puts on us as people who are under the new covenant, things like that. It's not necessarily saying, here's the Here's the good lesson that you have. Fortunately, this is how a, a lot of children's Bibles are written, right? The story of Noah and the flood. Everybody was bad, but Noah was a real stand-up guy. Be like Noah, don't be like everybody else. That's not necessarily the point of the story. Um, to say Noah was blameless in his walk with the Lord, but before it says that, it says Noah found favor. Hebrew word there is grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then the whole idea of the, of the, the whole point of the flood was not to teach us to be like Noah and not be like everybody else. It's to teach us that God is going to judge sin. But he's going to preserve his purposes for redemption. Right? So we, uh, we can end up drawing some inappropriate applications. Kevin, were you going to say something? Or were you just, just doing, okay. So lest I discourage you by telling you all the ways you can't apply the Bible, I want to give you some pointers for ways that we ought to think about application. So the first thing, and, and I've, so I've stolen some of these from your workbook, and I've added some others uh, on my own. Um, first thing is that we want to allow the meaning of the text, right, the, the one meaning that the text has, to inform your application. When we preach on Sunday mornings, we don't want to just leave you by telling you what Scripture says and what it means. We also want to help you to think through why it matters, why it ought to matter for your life. And if we got up, if, if I were to get up on a Sunday morning and say, this is what I think you guys need to do this week, but I didn't connect it to what Scripture says and means, hopefully you would walk away saying, 
there's no reason I need to obey that because that was John's opinion of what I should do. It wasn't what the Word says. And so I think the same thing runs true for when you interpret the Bible. You want to be able to connect the dots between what Scripture means and why it's having this particular effect in your life. I want to be great to be able to look at the way that you're applying the Bible and to see, yeah, that fits with the meaning of this, this text, with what the author intended. Uh, so they, they say here on page 159, the first principle recognizes that application follows observation and interpretation in the inductive processes. It's the process of Bible study. If you are careful and deliberate in your interpretation of the Bible, appropriate application will come much more easily. Don't discard all of the previous work you've done in interpretation once it comes time for application. And that can happen sometimes, right? You get done interpreting, and you're like, oh, okay, that's, wow, that was really interesting. Okay, now let's forget that part and go back to, just go back to the text. Now, now what does it mean to me? And we, we forget everything that we came to about what is this text teaching us? What did it mean to the original audience? And, and how do we draw theological principles from that that are going to affect our lives? And what's challenging about that when you think about applying the word and it uh, needing to be in line with with the meaning of the text of Scripture. You'd think it would be be obvious that that was something that we should do. Why, why might that be challenging to somebody? I, I, may, I may interpret the meaning differently than, than you. Okay. Yeah. So we may have we may have different interpretations based on our study of of scripture. Yep, that's possible. Yep. Okay. Say again? Okay, yeah, so as we interpret, we can kind of read our own meanings into it if we're not careful. Yeah? Yeah, Jim. Yeah, so there, there can be times, and, and you said, especially for, for new believers, I think it actually can happen for anybody. When they've been in the faith, maybe people who are new to the faith are more prone to it, possibly, um, that uh, if we have a particular issue that we're dealing with, that we want to be able to go to a place in Scripture, say, this, is, this answers that question, right? And there may be some issues on which there are things that we could say you know, that, that's the case. But for the most part, I mean, the Bible is not a, uh, as, as much as some people want to say it, the Bible is not a guidebook for everything in life. It will govern your whole life, right? It, God's given us all things we need for life and godliness. There's nothing that we need that God hasn't given us in his word, and yet it doesn't give us case law on everything that we're ever going to experience. 
Uh, and so, but it's a lot easier if I can just flip open my Bible to a verse and read it and say, oh, that means this, therefore that's the answer for my life. I mean, I, th I think one of the reasons this is hard is because it requires that you interpret the Bible. A lot of people don't want to do that. Like, no, I, I just want to read it and apply it. I don't want to have to think about, like, what it meant to the original audience or anything like that. I just want to read it and apply it. Now, the reality is the more you study the Bible... The more practice you get at it, I think the, the faster you'll be able to get to this step. Or if you've studied a passage and then you're reading it again, you're like, oh, that's right, I, kinda, I, I know what this, what this passage is getting at. And you can start to see new applications in it as, as you read through it. But that comes over time. Um, now, it doesn't mean that there's never a time where you can read Scripture and it's like, okay, I, now I have to spend three hours studying this passage before I can figure out what... God wants me to do, right? I mean, so there are passages that are going to be easier to apply than others, right? So reading uh, the letters of the New Testament generally are going to be a little bit easier to apply than some other passages, especially Old Testament narrative and things like that, because the New Testament letters were written to Christians, to Christian churches, right? So we're more like them in terms of where we are in the history of God's redemptive plan and and what the church is like, even though we're separated by 2,000 years and culture and all of that kind of stuff, those things are more, they're more easily applicable to us in a, in a more direct way than some of the other things that we might read in Scripture. Like, like the Old Testament narrative or the Old Testament law. Right? We have to do more work with that to figure out kind of how that fits. So, but it requires that we actually go about doing the work of interpretation. Number two is focus your attention on what the Bible teaches about God and specifically about Jesus. Um, it's on page 160. The Bible is about God. So if you were imagining the Bible as a movie and... Um, the, uh, the, the poster that they put up that's got, you know, the, the, you know, the picture and all the actors and stuff on it. There are many times we read the Bible and we think that we are uh, one of the people that gets their name above the title line, right? One of the stars. Right? The Bible's about me. Now, I think people, I think that comes because people are legitimately trying to say the Bible is relevant for your life, right? It's not just a dead book that you read about to learn stuff. It really involves you. You are a part of God's story. The problem is we can begin to think that the Bible is about us. It's not about you. It's about God, right? God is the only one above the title. You are at the end of the credits, <laughs> under a person who got redeemed by grace. The Bible is about God. It's a revelation of his character and his wise plan for creation. Certainly the Bible includes God's will for our lives. That's true. 
but we misunderstand the Bible if we think it's primarily about us. Therefore, in reading the Bible, we should always be alert to what the Bible is revealing to us about the nature and glory of God. Whatever we learn of God from the Bible, we must be ready to embrace and worship. So as you read, consciously think about what the text is teaching us about God. And even more specifically, as I'm not going to read these passages, but you see on page 160, Luke 24 and John 5, that Jesus himself specifically says, the scriptures are about me. And so as we as we read uh, any passage of Scripture, we ought to be asking not only what does this have to do with God and who He is, and, but what does this teach us about Christ? How does this point us to Christ? Where does this fall in God's redemptive plan that culminates in Christ? Which is why we talk when we, when, um, we learn how to preach sermons in, in seminary, and one of the things that they'll talk to us about is say, don't preach a sermon that you could preach in a mosque or a synagogue. So there are people who will preach things, and they may be at least in the, the ballpark when it comes to a meaning of a, maybe a passage in the Old Testament, but they never get to Jesus. Right? To preach a, a Christian sermon is to preach Scripture not only in its original meaning, but also in its meaning as it points either forward to Christ or back to Christ. So as we interpret the Bible and as we think about how do we, how do we come to an application of the Bible, part of the question we have to ask is, what does this teach me about Jesus? How, how does this prompt me to worship him more? What does this show me about his character, his grace, his love, for which I can praise him? Uh, number three is receive God's word directly in comparable situations. So this is a little bit what uh, Cheryl was alluding to earlier, that there, there are situations in, uh, in the Bible where there are things that we can probably say this is a pretty direct correlation one-to-one -one between what was happening then and what's happening now. These things seem uh, like I, I can probably draw a straight line from them to me, and I don't have to do a ton of work for it, uh, like the commandment not to murder. Okay, right? We don't need to do a ton of interpretation into uh, how does that apply to my life. Well, you probably shouldn't murder. That's step one. Now, there are other things that we could draw from that, things that we know about God's character and about the, the value of human life and being made in the image of God and, uh, and what that means. But um, if there's uh, comparable situations, uh, things that are kind of universal, doesn't matter where you, f where you are living in terms of God's redemptive plan, then those are things that you can take uh, directly. Uh, the example that they give in, on page 160 is there are times when, uh, they say, there are times when the original recipients will be in a situation that is directly comparable to situations we find ourselves in. In these instances, it's easy to apply the Bible's teaching. For, so, for example, you may find yourself worrying about the future. But Jesus spoke directly to this situation in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. 
as readers of the Bible, we have little to do in converting this first century message into a 21st century application. Now, it may not, when they say it's easy to apply, it means it's easy for us to come to an understanding of what the application ought to be. It doesn't mean it's easy to practice it, right? Then on top of page 161, it says, the skill in applying this principle, however, is discerning what are comparable situations and what are not. Practice, the, practice in the community of faith will help you develop this needed discernment. And so, and I think this is true just with all Bible study. And this is especially true, I think, with application is that um, the more you practice it, the better you'll get at it. Um, it's, uh, well, it's something that in a lot of ways can be fairly straightforward it's not actually easy to teach you how to apply the Bible. It's not always easy to teach yourself how to apply the Bible. It's something that, it's kind of like riding a bike. You start to get a feel for it. I can instruct you on what it, you know, what it means to try to balance yourself and things like that, but I can't, I can't do it for you. Now, more oftentimes, we're going to be especially uh, confused about uh, situations where there's not a direct comparison between what's going on with, with the people that we're reading about and, and what's going on with us. And so for that, we want to draw a theological principle from the text. This is especially true in, in narrative literature where, again, we don't want to just assume that the example of what we're seeing is something that we should imitate or that there's some kind of secret hidden meaning underneath what it's telling us about what happened that we need to spiritualize and then bring into our lives. But the Bible is the, we've talked about, it's about God, it tells God's story, it reveals things that are true about God, true about the way that he deals with people. If you believe what God says about himself, I, the Lord, do not change. So what we read in the Bible can give us instruction about who God is and how he deals with people. Because even though we're reading about something that happened 3,000 years ago, it's the same God and he doesn't change. So we can rely his character, his actions are going to be the same. Now, as you do this, these are some questions that I would ask, uh, particularly in situations that are not, uh, where you don't draw a direct line from what's going on in the text to, to your life. Start asking questions like, what does this passage tell me about God? What does it tell us about his character? How he interacts with people? Um, what he's done? What's true about him? What he promises to do? What does this passage tell me about people? Humanity. What does it tell, tell me about sin? Tell me about my sin. My sinful nature. What does this passage tell me about God's plan of redemption in Jesus? How does this point me to Christ? What does the passage tell me about God's will for his people? Then as you, as you think through some of these questions... And then you can ask yourself, now, if, if those things are true, those, those theological principles that I can draw out of this passage are true, 
And how would that affect my life today? So take that passage from Malachi. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. God's talking to the people of Israel. But he's saying something that's true about himself. Now, if it's true that God doesn't change, what does that mean as an implication for my life? He keeps his promises, all his promises. Right? What else? His character doesn't change. He's not going to move from being a, uh, a nice, merciful, kind, gentle God who is our Father in Christ to suddenly disowning us. He's not capricious or temperamental like the pagan gods. You think about situations in in your life um, it's true that God doesn't change that he keeps his promises that he's um, promised to do all of these different things for you in, in Christ how does that help you interact with the things that you're actually going through right. that part of the difficulty here is it actually takes a little bit more work for you to do this, right? You have to spend some time thinking through who God is and why it matters that that's who God is. But again, I think you're going to be much more rewarded in doing that than if you were to just come across uh, a verse and say, oh, that's nice, okay, I'll stick that in my back pocket and, uh, and repeat that today like a mantra and everything will be good. I think you're actually going to get to know this God that we worship. So, while it may be more difficult, uh, at least on, on the surface, to come to a text where we don't always uh, have a, a, a direct application the way that we want to, um, we, uh, we can ask questions like this to kind of help prompt us to say, okay, if this is what sh the Bible is teaching as true, how does it affect our lives? The way they talk about this in, in your workbook on page 161 is deriving an enduring principle in situations that are not directly uh, comparable. Uh, they, um, they list this, uh, they've got uh, five, what is it, five steps uh, for this one particular example of uh, when Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, Now, I don't, I've never met anybody, at least in the United States, who obeys that verse that way. Um, let me just put it out there. I don't want you to. <laughs> at least I don't, want, I don't want you to literally apply that uh, next Sunday. So, right, okay. Now, there are parts of the world where you do do that. I spent a month in the Netherlands, and... Every, yeah, everybody does the they kiss on both cheeks thing and 
whatever, and that was a little weird for me at first. I was like, I'm American. We stay back like this. You don't come near me. But um, so there are some places where they do that, but it's also cultural, right? But that's not a cultural expression of affection between brothers and sisters in Christ and in the United States or close friends necessarily. So, and part of it is saying, okay, if that's not what we're supposed to do, then, then what should we do? How do we apply that passage to our lives? And we have to think through, and, and, and they, they um, reproduce here some of John Piper's reasoning, saying, okay, well, we have to think through, well, what was the uh, greet one another with a holy kiss? What was a holy kiss? Well, it was a common custom of the time. It was culturally acceptable. Uh, it calls it holy, so uh, it was not an unholy kiss. You can use your imagination for that. Um, it was family affection, so it's not romantic. We usually think of kiss as being romantic. This is not uh, romantic. This is family affection. So uh, there are, I kiss my kids, but it's not romantic. That's family affection. So there is a way that we kiss family affection, but I also don't do, I don't even do that with all of my family. There's lots of my family I don't want to kiss. <laughs> all right, so, but it was, a, there, there was a physical demonstration. So it was a physical demonstration of affection in some way. And it was culturally conditioned. And so as he works through these things, say, okay, now we have to think through, are there, if those are kind of the, the principles that Paul is after, like, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to greet one another like family in a way that is holy and appropriate for your culture. For Paul and them at that point, that was this holy kiss. Now, there is some research that would even say that the holy kiss wasn't even really a kiss. It was just kind of putting your cheek on somebody else's cheek. So, but the question that we would have to ask ourselves then is, what would be an analogous thing that we could do today that shows that kind of affection? So, I, 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 I five, well, possibly. I mean, and so I'm not necessarily asking you to give me the answer to that question. You have to say, for some Christians, it's the side hug. I think it's the most awkward thing that's ever been invented. <laughs> but we have to think through what is a culturally appropriate way to fulfill what Paul, the, the principle that Paul was getting at when he, when he wrote this, because the culture is different. So part of application is thinking through what, what things are culturally conditioned and what things aren't. Now, some people will say things like, well, that was the culture back then, so we just don't do that now. But they do that for everything, right? So when, uh, when Paul writes in uh, 1 Timothy that he doesn't want women to wear jewelry or braid their hair, um, we're like, okay, well, everybody kind of knows that's... That was a cultural thing. That was a particular cultural expression at the time. Doesn't mean the same thing now. Hasn't meant the same thing for a long time. So we have to ask, what is that? What does that mean? And if you're interested in what I think about that, you can go back and listen to my sermon on it. Um, but there are other things that Paul writes um, that then people will say, well, if that's culturally conditioned, then this is. Things like homosexuality being sin. Well, that was the culture back then. So, so then there's, there's more work we have to do to show, well, 
That is not a culturally conditioned thing. That's actually something that is that's true across the board. Right? Uh, five, check your application against the rest of Scripture. Um, it's on page 163. The Bible communicates one unified message. Therefore, you should be extremely suspicious of an application which seems to contradict another teaching of Scripture, especially if that other teaching comes from a clearer portion of Scripture or a didactic one. That means um, didactic means teaching. So uh, a passage of Scripture that's explicitly uh, teaching something. Also, remember to place your study and application within the broader flow of redemptive history. A right handling of this principle would preclude any hasty application of Old Testament passages. This may be an easy illustration, um, but if you were in church on Sunday, Bob preached on uh, lots of offerings and talked about all the, the sacrifices that the people of Israel were commanded to do in, uh, in the wilderness and, and then carry that on through the time, their time in Israel in the temple and and so forth. And um, if we were to try to draw a direct application from that passage and say, well, that's how God commanded the people of Israel to deal with their sin. Why aren't we doing that? We should be doing that, right? We say to somebody, it's what the Bible says. Why aren't you doing it? You say you're keto? No, PETA. Oh, PETA. Yeah. Yeah. He was a perfect sacrifice. Yeah, I would say somebody's like, why aren't you sacrificing? I say, go read the book of Hebrews. He gave himself once for all. All those sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. Then Jesus came. We don't need to do that anymore. Right, so now that's maybe a bit more of a of an obvious example of a place where you know, we could point to someone and say, yeah, you're telling us we need to do this, but I'm telling you that there's other places in the Bible that say it doesn't work that way anymore, and that that had a specific purpose for a specific time. Now, that may change. There might be other places where it's not quite, uh, quite so easy, but check your application against the rest of Scripture. If you're finding an example of something that you think you ought to do, and other places in Scripture say you shouldn't do that, then... You shouldn't do that. And six, this gets back to what Janet was talking about earlier. Remember that imperatives in Scripture, imperative means command, something that you are commanding somebody to do, or when Scripture commands something, but imperatives are based on indicatives, statements of, of fact, right? Now, we can get really really bent out of shape if we mix this up. That's what a lot of people do. They base the indicatives on the imperatives, right? So the um, command to uh, be holy, in some people's minds, will then lead to the statement 
that you are forgiven. Be holy so that you will be forgiven. Right? Problem is, we would say that the rest of the Bible teaches that it's actually flipped. You're forgiven, so be holy. And in fact, if you try to be holy without being empowered by the knowledge that you're forgiven and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be holy. Yeah, you're doing it by works, exactly right. And so basing uh, what's true about you on what you do is effectively salvation by works. And so remember that when we go to apply Scripture, even when Scripture is commanding us to do something, and Scripture commands us to do things, that it doesn't command us to do things to earn our standing with God. It doesn't command us to do things in our own strength. And this can be hard because one of the places that we definitely want to drift to when we do application, I think naturally, is to look for things that are commanded. Because they're, first of all, they're easier. I mean, not easier to obey, but they're easier to find. Do this, don't do this. And frankly, I think it, it plays to our sinful, fleshly pride that we get to play a role. Right? That we get to do something. Think about situations where things don't go the way you want them to do. How many of you try to take responsibility? Because even if things didn't go the way you wanted them to go, if it was your responsibility, you could have made it different. Right? We, we, we want that responsibility. But it's not because we want to be holy. It's because we want to be able to pat ourselves on the back just a little bit. We want to steal just a sliver of God's glory. Fear he won't miss it that much. He's got a lot. Remember that even the, the commands that we are commanded to obey can only be obeyed out of a heart that's been renewed. Right? And this is Paul's whole point, or uh, well, it's part it's Paul's whole point, certainly in uh, in early in the book of Romans, and and but if you read throughout the Bible. Even, go back to the law, the end of the, the law in Deuteronomy. God says, okay, I've told you to, uh, to do all these things. Now, here's the deal. You can't do them. You need a new heart. You're going to try to do them on the outside, and, and that's just going to show you that you can't do them and that you need a new heart to do them. And when you get a new heart, and then I'm going to write my law on your heart so that you do it. But you do it from the heart, not from the outside in. So remember, as you're going to apply the Bible, that it's not a book of do's and don'ts that you are to do to, to conform your life. It's a book about what God has done in Christ to redeem you and now is doing in you to change you. And then... This is related. When you're doing application, aim for the heart, not just behavior modification. Right? So behavior modification, apart from heart change, your will, your trust, the things that you worship, right? When we talk about idolatry, idolatry is a heart problem. It's something that where your heart is captured by something other than Christ. Apart from heart change... Behavior modification is just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. 
right? You can change the way it looks, but it's going to the same place. It says God changes you from the inside that the outside is going to change. Right? This is what Jesus talked about when he compared spiritual growth and spiritual change to a tree. Right? He says you can't make the tree's fruit good and therefore make the tree good. He said make the, the roots, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. Right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's the heart that produces the fruit, not the fruit that changes the heart. Right? And if, you're, if you get it backwards, then you're doing what Paul Tripp calls fruit stapling. Right? You're just gluing pieces of fruit to the tree. You're stapling pieces of fruit to the tree thinking it's going to change you. It's not. I've tried. So you want to aim for the heart. So it doesn't mean that there's never something you're going to come across in Scripture that will instruct you to change your behavior. I think you will find those things. But you also want to make sure that you're not only doing that, that you're not only looking for things that I need to change today in my outward behavior. It's not always going to be something that's observable on the outside. All right, and then just a little bit of help thinking through, all right, so if I'm going to apply something uh, to my life, what are kind of areas that I should be thinking through as I'm looking at a text and uh, what the implications that a text might have for me? So I just, of course, stole this from our doctrinal statement. Any of these three areas, I think on your sheet I have it listed as head, head hands, and heart, right? So think about what you believe, uh, what you do, and what you trust and worship. So, th this is, can, can be a challenge for us, again, because oftentimes when we look for application, we're looking for things to do or not do, things that we can obey. Um, and you are going to have those situations, but there are other times that applications are not going to result in somebody being able to walk into your, your life that day and see, oh, I see that you changed this thing in your life. This habit is different. You talk differently. You interact with me differently. Now, over the course of time, hopefully that, that stuff is happening. And for some people, um, they're going to read something, and it's going to affect them immediately. Like, oh, my word, I need to change. This was Augustine. When Augustine was converted, he read Romans uh, 13, 14. This says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lusts. And Augustine had been a very promiscuous young man and immediately realized how sinful he'd been and he became celibate the rest of his life. Now, I don't necessarily know that um, Romans 13, 14 is commanding you to become celibate for the rest of your life. Uh, but that was the application that Augustine drew from it. And so there are going to be times where things can be radical and you can see, oh my word, I need to change this. And that God gives you the power to do that. But there are other times when uh, the application is not so outward. It's much more inward. And the effects of it on the outside may not be seen immediately. Now, it's interesting that uh, so much of kind of my initial training as a Christian focused on figuring out stuff that I could change. 
At least that's the way that I took it, whether or not that's actually what was communicated. That's the way I received it. That I didn't really have a category for uh, part of application could be uh, changing things that I think or changing what I love, right? What I trust. I do think it's interesting that the first command in the book of Romans is to think differently, right? First of all, there's, there's no commands in the book of Romans until you get to chapter 6, which should indicate something to us. Salvation is by grace, right? From Romans 3 to the end of Romans 5, where Paul talks about justification by faith, we're not commanded to do anything, right? We're just saved by faith, right? So we believe. But then when it comes to our sanctification, the first thing that Paul tells us to do is consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, here's what's true about you. Think, think differently about yourself. So we have to change our mind, to believe something different. Right? We're always going to be challenged in what we believe about God. We have a tendency to make God in our image, think that God's a bigger version of us. And so the Bible will constantly challenge us and say that God is different than that. You think, oh, I didn't like this. If I was God, I wouldn't have done it that way. Well, you're not God, and he did it that way, which makes it right. So we, we change the way we think about God, and we worship him for who he has revealed himself to be. But the Bible does also give us uh, commands. Oh, this is a, I skipped. I didn't do this in the right order. Um, the Bible's also be trusted in all that it promises. Right? See this again in Romans. God shows us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? Has anybody ever doubted that God loved them? I, I have. The application of this text would be if you doubt that God loves you, look to the cross. The evidence that God loves you is that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. So we're to trust that. Does God love you? Yes, how do you know Christ died for me? And before you um, say, well, that's not enough, I need something more, just think about that. But then also, right in the same passage, uh, in uh, Romans 6, we also have something that we're to obey, right after, so it says, Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So think differently. But then also, 
There's something for you to do. So don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Right? Don't uh, hear the, 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 the word reign is, is, a, is a similar word to the word king in, in Greek. So it's like saying, don't let sin be your king. Don't give your allegiance to it. Don't give yourself to it to do what it wants you to do. Present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Again, important that this occurs after all of the discussion about you having been justified by faith. Right? It doesn't start, he doesn't start the letter by saying, don't let sin reign in your body. He gets there only after he says, you couldn't do anything, so God did it. Think through those areas as you're working through application in your, in your study. How does this affect what I believe to be true about God? How does it, uh, what does it promise that I need to trust? What does it command that I need to obey? And how does my obedience flow out of the truth of who I am in Christ? All right, a couple resources for you. A uh, couple books, Putting the Truth to Work and Getting the Message by Dan Doriani. Dan, I've, uh, I've heard Dan Doriani speak a couple of times, and I wish I could hear him speak more. I love him. Uh, he teaches uh, uh, at uh, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis and uh, has written quite a bit on uh, applying the Bible and uh, interpreting it uh, accurately and things like that. So especially Putting the Truth to Work is all about applying the Bible and doing it well. So that's one I would recommend. Crosstalk, um, I probably could recommend that book for almost any topic that I teach on because it's really good. It is also the book that I stole the title from uh, for our crosstalks. <laughs> uh, I just thought it was a good title, so uh, don't tell Mike that I did that. Uh, and, uh, but that's a good one. It's, it's both about interpreting the Bible, but then also... Uh, working through how does the Bible affect and intersect with my life. Uh, and then the book Noble Word, we've recommended a couple times. It's just a little book on Bible study and has a section on uh, application. And then Peter Kroll's website, knowableword.com, there's a bunch of stuff on there about application and how to go about applying the Bible. It's really helpful. Uh, I'm linking to all this stuff in the, uh, the notes for the, for the sermon on, on the website so you can have access to that. Okay. Got about 12 minutes. So what? You have persevered and spent uh, quite a bit of time over the last five months, six months, here with me for which you should be greatly rewarded. I mean, I'm not going to do it, but you should be. But if you walk out of here and you say, boy, that was nice, and then you don't do anything with what we've been learning, then I will consider what I've done to be a failure. 
because it's not the hearers of the word who are blessed, it's the doers of the word. Now, of course, I'm not saying that what I'm teaching you is the word, but if you sit here and learn and learn and learn, but you don't do anything with it, then it's not going to help you, it's not going to help the church, it's not going to advance the gospel. We don't want people to be reservoirs, we want them to be conduits. We don't want water to go into the reservoir and sit stagnant. We want it to go somewhere and do something. Right? So, the question that I have for you is how can you apply what you've learned in this class to your life and ministry? Right? So, some things to think about. How can you set a pattern for personal Bible study in your life? Right? How can you make a commitment to say, I want to study this book of the Bible and then actually follow through on it? Realistically, don't start by saying, I'm going to study Isaiah verse by verse. Don't, don't start there. You'll get discouraged. But what could you do? What could you do? How could you apply this? Right? How could you apply this in your life so that maybe starting small, you can actually do Bible study on your own using the tools that we've been giving you. How about this? Who could you meet with one-on-one to study the Bible? Right? Have you ever wondered, how do I disciple somebody? You meet with them and read the Bible together. And maybe they know how to read the Bible, maybe they don't. If they don't, then you get the opportunity to impart things that you've learned to them about reading the Bible. Uh, I have some resources that I'm also going to put on the, uh, the website for, for some of this stuff. Some of you have seen the little book, One-to-One Bible Reading. Um, that's a good little book by David Helm, just about how do I sit down with another person and read the Bible? in a way that's going to help them, both of us, grow. Also, you don't need my permission to meet with somebody one-on-one to read the Bible. So, please just do it. I wonder if it was Pastor Bob and he's always busy. I know, yeah. (laughs) And everybody else too, right? How can you help other people to learn how to study the Bible well? Now, please don't, uh, I, I don't want you to feel as if helping people learn how to study the Bible means you need to do what I'm doing. That's not true. I mean, part of the way that you can help people learn how to study the Bible is through that kind of one-on-one study, or even in just casual conversation, just sharing the word with one another. Say, I was reading this this morning, and, I, and here's some of the stuff I was thinking through about it, and this is how I came to understand this this passage, and you encourage them with that, right? By your example, you're, you're giving them good principles to, to study the Bible with. One of the, one of the ways that I found that I learned how to study the Bible, uh, I mean, so I, I was in a Bible study, and I was meeting with people who were teaching me, but one of the ways is I, I listened to John Piper preach, okay? And he didn't teach me how to study the Bible, he didn't, sit, he didn't stand up there and say, now, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this. 
But I listened to him preach. And I saw the way that he interacted with the text of Scripture. And I started to think to myself, I want to learn to read the Bible like that. And so sometimes people can simply by your example pick up things uh, and will help them to to have a hunger to study the Bible and then begin to, to do it and practice it. So, now I'm going to challenge you. How can you apply what you've learned? Is anybody brave enough to take the plunge and say how you might be able to apply what you've been learning? Yeah, Chris. I'm pretty new to all this, mm -hmm. and uh, having young kids, I have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old daughter, and mm -hmm. I'll be able to take what I learn here and help with them. Yeah, yeah, you can can use it to disciple your kids, right? There's actually, uh, I'm glad you said that, because there's another book, there's always another book <laughs> with me. I... I think, yeah. quiet down. Uh, there's a guy, it's the, uh, uh, the author is John Nielsen, and I think the title of the book is One-to-One uh, -one Bible Reading for Kids, or uh, How to Read the Bible with Your Kids, or something like that. I, uh, I'll put it on the website so that you can uh, access it, but that's a, it's kind of takes some of the same principles from that book, One-to-One -one Bible Reading, it says, now how do you do this with your kids, um, which I think is great. To apply it in everyday life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do it, do it with others, children, spouse. Apply it in everyday life. Now, what what would that look like in your life? But not necessarily yours. I mean, you can answer if you'd like. But would it look like in your life to make that a regular pattern? If you don't have a regular pattern, is that already? Yeah, are you willing to? Give up watching another episode of Sports Center, which is it's the same every hour, um, in order to spend an hour studying the Bible. Because everybody will say, "Oh gosh, you know, I'm just so busy; I don't have time." Well, we all have the same amount of time. It's how what we choose to to do with it. Brett. Well, we should be using it to guide our, our Bible studies with our groups, our small groups, our men's groups, women's groups, those kind of things, um, that we're not just opening up for discussion and saying, you know, how, does, you know, how do we feel about this, and, mm -hmm. and uh, actually making some good applications and good interpretations. And then yeah. also, like, in our, in our discussions with unbelievers, um, some kind of uh, confusions they might have about what the Bible actually says that we can... Yeah. You know, rightly show them uh, you know, what what the uh, Bible's trying to say in certain mm -hmm. passages they might find strange or confusing or, yeah. you know, they're making some kind of misapplication or taking things out of context. Yeah. So it's almost like I planted you there to say that, right? It affect the way if you, if you lead a, a small group, 
some kind, affects the way that you, that you lead your group, that you, that you teach content, affects the way that you interact with non-Christians, maybe especially if they're challenged you on, well, the Bible says this or it says that. And you're like, well, let's actually talk about that. Can I show you where I think that's actually wrong? Um, yeah, that's good. Brent. I think uh, just learning, like at least personally for me, like every time I come to the scripture, just remembering like the big picture that this is God's story mm-hmm. um, about his redemption in Christ. Mm-hmm. I think it's very easy. I don't think I know as I read, it's very easy to forget that and just be focused on, on the reading aspect. Mm-hmm. But just learning to like take the simple step of even just praying that before like I read the Bible, like God, this is your word, this mm-hmm. is your story. Mm-hmm. Help me to see that. Yeah. Wait for the sure. yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to put my meaning and interpretation before yeah. doing the observation. Mm-hmm. So that's some definitely a takeaway. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, as you read, wanting to to actually observe what does the text say before you decide what it means, right? Yeah. That's good. So these are things that you guys can think about. I would love to to hear from you as the weeks and months go by on how you might be utilizing some of the things that we've that we've talked about. Um, I also want to uh, tell you what's going on this fall. You may have heard this uh, before. So so this fall we're we're taking what we're doing now and we're, we're making some tweaks and we're doing it a little bit differently. So rather than having one study, we're going to have two. Uh, one will meet on Tuesday nights like this. will be men and women. One will meet on Wednesday mornings. It'll be just women. Um, and uh, so we'll start uh, September 25th, 26th. Uh, I would start earlier, but I'm on vacation the week before, and I'm not coming back for that. <laughs> yeah, why not? Uh, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to do a, a guided Bible study of 2 Timothy. Okay, so we're going to take some of the stuff that we've, we've learned and we're actually going to study a book. Um, so there'll be about 30 minutes of me teaching. I know you're thinking, yeah, right, 30 minutes. It's like Tom saying he's going to preach for 30 minutes. Um, uh, I'll probably teach for about two hours. No, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to try to teach for like 30 minutes and then 60 to 75 minutes afterwards of small group discussion about that. Uh, passage that we're studying in Second Timothy. There's not going to be homework, right? And there was much rejoicing. Um, I can give you homework if you want, okay? But uh, you, uh, you, you won't need to do it. Uh, and so we'll come and, uh, and uh, we'll have uh, people who are uh, leading it at tables. And, and this could be a good opportunity. If there are some of you who thinking, I'm, I'm learning this. I don't know quite how to apply it. Um, there may be a need that we have for people to, to lead those discussion groups. Uh, and so that's something that you may want to consider. Now, me putting this out there doesn't mean that if you come and say, I want to lead one, I'm going to say, yes, definitely. But it's at least something that I want to have a conversation with you about. All right, so... Second Timothy? Yeah, so we're going to study Second Timothy. Maybe I didn't say it, but we're going to study Second Timothy. Yep. So, uh, so that's what we're doing. Uh, there's be more details coming as we get closer uh, to what that looks like. 
So we want to have, on, on Tuesday nights, we want to have um, groups that are uh, uh, just for men, uh, groups that are just for women, and then groups that are couples, uh, mixed. So um, we're, we're working on some of the logistics on that behind the scenes. Uh, we'd love to have childcare, but please don't shoot me if we don't because it's really hard. Uh, and so we're, we're working on trying to get something like that. Um, trying to think if there's anything else I need to say about that. Uh, so we'll start in September. We will end when I'm done teaching Second Timothy. <laughs> Which I, I don't, I have to actually map out what the, what the schedule's gonna be like, so. It's not going to be two verses at a time, no, if that's what you're asking, no. Uh, no, it, uh, we were, it was like, we'll be studying Second Timothy for the next three years. Uh, no, I, I, eight to ten-ish weeks, something like that. And then we'll do another one in the spring. Good. Hmm? No, 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 we're not doing a sentence a week. As fun as that would be, we're not doing a sentence a week. Okay. Yeah, Karen. Yes, the plan is to have it every week. Yep. But it's also something that because we're, we're just studying a, a book of the Bible, we're not, um, we're not doing like a, a curriculum where everything builds on each other, that if you miss a week, you can slide back in and it's not going to be as, as big of a deal. Uh, and also it prov- it'll provide a, a, an opportunity for people to more easily get connected. And so if we have somebody who comes, they want to be a, a part of a small group, we, maybe we don't have a small group that's open at that time or something like that, we can say, hey, but you can come on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday morning and you can join you know, right there. You can be a part of what's, what's going on there and, and uh, they can kind of come in at any point and it's not an issue. Yeah, Kevin. Oh, uh, seven. If it's, if it's not listed, if there's something going on in the evening and it's not listed at this church, just assume it's seven. That's, the, that's our standing rule. Makes it easier for us, because then we don't have to ask ourselves, what time does that start? So we never remember. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. No. How, how did I pick Second Timothy, and is it part two of this workbook? Uh, it's not part two of this workbook. It's not associated with the workbook at all. It's just, we're just going to study 2 Timothy. Uh, I picked 2 Timothy partly for very selfish reasons, uh, because I'm actually going to be teaching some of 2 Timothy in Lebanon at the end of uh, July. So it makes it easier for me, because then I don't have to do twice the prep. So, and 2 Timothy is a good book. But they're all good books. So, but it's also relatively short, so it's, it's a bit more manageable in terms of a kind of eight to ten week um, study. Yeah. Okay, thank you all.